Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly dash through this week's tech news, including new switches from Arista, a serious vulnerability in Fortinet, Microsoft acquisitions, and more. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to join the Packet Pushers on January 23rd, 2023 for a live stream event on the future of infrastructure and data processing units, aka DPUs. It's sponsored by Dell Technologies. We're going to talk about how DPUs accelerate workloads, what network engineers need to know about DPUs, the operational and business benefits, and more. You can sign up now for this free online live stream at packetpushers.net slash live stream. Also, by the way, a reminder that every week we put out the human infrastructure. This is a weekly newsletter. It's got curated technical blogs, new product announcements, essays, video links, and memes. It's free to sign up and we don't sell or share your contact details. You can get it and see all the back issues at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Yeah, it's good fun that actually people have been talking, been uh, sending in if you've got a link or something, and don't forget, if you've got a follow-up that you want to send us or you ever want to communicate with us, you can go to packetpushers.net slash FU, where you can tell us what you're thinking. Um, send us your follow-up, send us your feedback. If you've got a link or a topic you'd like to see us cover on Network Break or maybe over on Heavy Strategy or um, Kubernetes Unpacked or whatever, even the shows that aren't in the aggregated feed, uh, by all means, you know, hit us up and uh, send us no need for details if you just want to leave a comment without any of your personal details again we don't ever try to track our audience or get you harassed without getting your permission before so so you know sponsored events is the only time we ask for your details and even then we still ask for permission so uh don't forget you can tell us what you're thinking tell us what you want us to do for you or to help you with and if you just want to talk to us and let us know something or ask questions of us don't hesitate to reach out Yep. Uh, and by the way, um, if you are writing a technical blog or you're doing stuff online, technical content online, you know, just for the community, let me know. Send me the link. Uh, we were happy to, to share what you're doing in that newsletter uh, as part of that curated technical blog section. So, yeah, please reach out packetpushers.net slash FU mm -hmm. uh, or just email me, Drew, at packetpushers.net. All right, let's do a little news first. Arista Networks has announced a bunch of new switches, including an 800 gig switch in the 7060X5 line. They announced this in mid-December. Arista is rolling out eight new switch models across two product lines. The switches are targeting hyperscalers as well as traditional enterprises. Uh, I'll start with the 7050X line. Uh, that's offering up to eight terabits per second total throughput, and they are mixing and matching combinations of 100 gig, 200 gig, and 400 gig ports with backwards compatibility down to 10 gig ports. And the switches are built around Broadcom's Trident ASIC. Then there's the 7060 x 5 series model supporting up to 25.6 terabits throughput with options ranging from 64 ports of 400 gig to 32 ports of 800 gig. And these switchers are using Broadcom's Tomahawk 4 ASIC. Yeah, so this is the iteration cycle we're seeing around Ethernet driven by the large clouds. Once upon a time, it used to take six or seven years for an Ethernet ASIC to iterate. And so that is why in the old days, we used to have a lot of chassis and so that you could, you know, and during that time, if there was ever a, you know, out of sync step or iteration in Ethernet, it didn't require you to take everything out. One of the things that I noticed about these, Drews, was that the chassis from two years ago are now being replaced by a 2RU box. If you look at the 7050CX4, it's like, that's a chassis from two years ago is now shrunk down to a single single 2RU switch, which is... Yeah, they are cramming a lot into these boxes. That's right. You know, this is a 50 slash 100 gig box and it's got like 64 ports of it on that. 64 ports, 100 gig. Two years ago was a chassis, a 10, 10 IU chassis. <laughs> this is now a 2 IU switch. And uh, you can take all of the previous commentary we've ever made about, you know, space savings, power savings, money savings is all in there. Uh, basically, this range of switches to me, Drew, you took the briefing and I've skipped through the notes, but this looks to me like uh, Broadcom's iterated its ASICs and Arista's taking advantage of those to repackage them into its new generation of switches. So... 
the only thing that seems to vary around these a little bit to what other vendors are doing is it the way that uh, Arista is addressing the surges, so how they present to the front interface and how customers can take advantage of the OSFP or the QSFP uh, switches because they've got a lot of breakout cables associated. Right. They're also sort of, I think, breaking out along different use cases. If you're looking just to do straight networking, here's switch A. If you're looking to do uh, HPC, high-performance high computing, they've got something for you. If you're a hyperscaler and you just need a bunch of ports with super fast bandwidth, they've got you covered. So they're trying to, I think, essentially cover all the use case bases they can while still sticking to that you know, off-the-shelf uh, ASIC model that they've always uh, gone with. Yeah, I noticed the presentation didn't talk about chipsets at all, but you've got you've obviously asked them in the briefing what the chipsets I did. are. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always curious. <laughs> I'm always curious too, yes. because really these days, what uh, most of the vendors are producing is determined by what the ASIC does, and they've only got a finite number of choices they can make around this. And in this case, um, Arista's emphasizing that they're working to keep your existing fiber plant. So um, a lot of the more, the newer, especially when you get up towards 400 gig, 800 gig, something just twicked my hand while I was talking. Notice there's no 200 gig here. Um, there was for a while a lot of discussion around 200 gig. And although um, Arista's ta talking up support for it around AIML and HPC, I'm not seeing a whole lot of 200 gig outside of very niche use cases. There is one model supporting 200 gig ports, I assume mm. that is for their HPC use case. But yeah, everybody is looking at 100, 400, or 800, I think, basically now, especially yeah. in the hyperscale market. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of the 200 gig means that you can clock down, you can just use two lanes of 112 gig, or maybe you're using four lanes of 112 gig SIRDES, or maybe you're using four lanes of 56 gig. So there's a few tricks in there that you've got to watch out for when you're, you're porting them. But Arista's saying for a lot of their models, They've got options in the SFP interfaces, and if you're using breakout cables as well, you can step down and continue to use, even at 800 gig, your existing fiber plant. And we know that people don't like changing their fiber. They have a real thing about that. I personally think that's a little bit crazy, but um, people should be moving to flexible click-and-clack fiber plant in their data centers, especially in the enterprise if you're running one. You shouldn't have hardwired cable hardwired into you know, top-of-rack <laughs> patch panels. It should be click, you know, just modular stuff that, you know, oh, hang on, we need new ones. We'll just go through and pull out all of that backbone cabling and replace it with new stuff. It shouldn't be a big deal these days. Uh, sticking with new, Intel's announced the fourth generation of its Xeon CPUs. These are codenamed Sapphire Rapids. They're promising higher performance, better power optimization, and built-in accelerator options for use cases such as networking, storage, and AI. Intel is definitely betting big on this generation of Xeons to help restore the chipmaker's preeminence. Uh, Intel executive Sandra Rivera called this out specifically in the official press release, saying, quote, the launch of fourth-gen Xeon scalable processors and the Mac series product family is a pivotal moment in fueling Intel's turnaround. So Intel's kind of bet in the shop on these Xeons. <laughs> it has to. Uh, it's probably <laughs> worth noting that these that this range of chips is a couple of years late. And a big part of the reason that Pat Gelsinger was hired as CEO for $180 million, um, <laughs> in, you know, in a $180 million a year package, uh, was because the previous CEO wasn't able to deliver. And so these are significantly late and significantly different. And to a large extent, Intel's future is actually betting on getting customers to buy this. Remember, AMD has made significant ground, come from nowhere, and is uh -huh. shipping equivalent class CPUs to what Intel is shipping and getting customers on board. So we've seen Dell and HPE and Cisco all start shipping AMD because, uh, well, AMD had CPUs to ship when Intel didn't, and uh, right. at a price point and at a power consumption point that was convenient. So when they say is a pivotal moment in fueling Intel's turnaround, 
there's actually, and if you hear that and think that's a sense of desperation, I think you're quite right. Intel needs to make these ships fly. And there's lots of questions about whether they can or they can't. So let's just throw some stuff around. The fourth gen Xeons say that customers can expect 2.9 average performance per watt efficiency. So 29x, over, so it's roughly three times faster for targeted workloads. So that is when you're using built-in accelerators. So these chips are chiplet, full of chiplets. So even though they're one big CPU die, just one CPU die, in fact, what's on board is multiple small chips all welded together with interconnects. Uh, and these built-in accelerators will get you up to uh, 70 watts of power savings in an optimized power mode with minimal power performance loss for select workloads and a 52 to 66% lower cost of TCO. Do you hear all those caveats? <laughs> Lots of caveats there. I was like, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's also, there's, there's sub clauses. They're, they're putting little carrots at the, on the numbers. Like you have to look at the fine print here to, yeah. There, so yeah. There's three footnotes inside of those words. So. Right. Three footnotes here. Yes. <laughs> Just right there. So you can go and study those in your own. There's links in the show notes there. You can go and get a load of those. Um, I also noticed that the prices range from something fairly small all the way up to $17,000 just for the CPU. Isn't that wow. great? And just for the CPU. Jeez. That so, must be uh, a lot of accelerators then, and you'd really need that use case. That's that's a lot for just Well, I think some of the larger cloud providers have been waiting for this chipset uh, to, you know, and there are the usual plethora of SKUs and so forth that Intel puts together. Um, but a la, I also noticed that a lot of the industry response to this CPU um, Intel was out there talking up the fact that this CPU is also going to be going into laptops or a version of this Sapphire Lake technology. The Xeon Sapphire Lake is very much a data center refresh, but part of the announcement this week included stuff for laptops. And the financial analysts were berating Intel on the financial call that they had uh, recently saying, and Intel saying, no, 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 there's no reduction in TAM. We're expecting people who all bought their laptops in 2020, you know, during COVID, well, this year they're going to go and refresh them all. And everybody's going like, Really? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so uh, the Intel business is largely driven by refresh cycles, and we are seeing the cloud companies move from a have moved from a three to a four year refresh cycle for their servers, and apparently now moving out to a five year refresh cycle. So they're finding ways to reuse the old hardware, and they're not feeling the need to throw it out like they used to, in some way. So there is some sense that Intel is making. Uh, statements on future sales and how it's going to penetrate the market and achieve sales that can't actually be backed up by the reality, which is rather unusual, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it's funny. I, Given how much Intel is staking on this, the I it, it really only crossed my radar, in fact, because I happened to just catch a tweet from Pat Gelsinger saying, hey, the new Sapphire Rapids is out and it's going to be great for everyone and everything. And I was like, oh, didn't, didn't know that. So yeah, I, I, the, the reaction to this has been kind of muted, and I guess because, I mean, it's just, just a new CPU, but Intel is definitely hoping that uh, this helps turn around their fortunes. Yeah, well, I put a link into a post from Semi-Analysis. He's uh, quite often someone who's fairly critical of Intel, so take that with a dose of salt, but he makes some very good points in his article um, about that, sort of saying that there seems to be a sense of unreality. He particularly highlighted that a lot of the Intel executives were on stage saying, my daughter did, you know, or my child did this. You know, and one of them was saying, oh, no, no, we're definitely expecting more laptops to sell because, like, for example, my daughter is at college. She wants two laptops in case one breaks. And so we expect, and I'm going like, that's not, this, is, a, this is one of the world's leading silicon makers and the senior exec is saying, 
and my daughter is the key use case. I'm like, hang on. <laughs> That's, no. Uh, and he put, he calls that out a lot. Apparently, even during the presentation, a lot of the senior execs had obviously been coached to use a personal story. So all of them were saying, my child says, you know, it's like, that's no, not, not quite how I don't think that says what you think it says. Yeah, I guess you're they've operating all, um, an entirely different financial strata from ninety. Sounds a bit torrid to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bit... <laughs> oh boy, they made a massive faux pas with the torrid thing, and uh, we don't hear that anymore. Have you noticed? Remember, right, that? right torrid. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> torrid. Torrid is usually related to uh, hot and sweaty in the back of your pants, you know, sort of thing, and uh, <laughs> you know that sort of swampy wetness that you get. That's torrid, and uh, <laughs> but they thought it meant hot and fast. Right. But okay. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Uh, all right. We'll leave that there. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to read up more about the new chips and also that uh, analyst take on uh, Intel and their their forecasting. Uh, but we'll move on. Uh, there's a vulnerability in security vendor Fortinet's SSL VPN software that's been exploited by a threat actor to infect government targets with malware. This is according to a story in Ars Technica. Uh, Fortinet had patched the vulnerability in late November, but waited until mid-December to disclose that an active exploit was being used against a customer. This is also according to the Ars story. If Fortinet had been more forthcoming about the active exploit, customers could have prioritized upgrading the relevant software. Yeah, so this the first thing I want to note here is this is another round of bad news for Fortinet in terms of vulnerabilities in their products. They've had a few vulnerabilities. Certainly haven't sort of reached the sort of numbers that Cisco's had in the last two or three years. Uh, but Fortinet, I think we've had them a couple of times last year. And uh, it's not a good look. I mean, Fortinet's excuse could be that it's grown significantly in the last you know, two or three years, we talked about how it's, it's now significantly large security company and mm-hmm. grown enormously in terms of products sold. But I think we need to see better disclosure and I hope they're doing something to tune that up. Now, you could argue that a quiet fix, if there's no active exploits, is actually worthwhile. Put it out silently, get it into the code stream and some people will be covered before it gets public. And, you know, it's, that's not a... But in this case, there was active exploits before they came forward with it. And I think that's a that's a problem. They need to get ahead of it somehow. Yeah, I understand that disclosing vulnerabilities and exploits can be embarrassing, especially if you're a security vendor. But if there's even the hint of an impression that you aren't being fully forthright about impacts and exploits, I think that can look even worse than the fact that your software does have a vulnerability because we know all software does have vulnerability. So yeah, my policy is be forthright right away, quickly as possible, let people uh, assess the risks fully and then make decisions uh, based on those risks. Yeah, definitely. I think honesty is, you know, a policy because then I can trust you. Yeah. Even if it's bad news, but it's probably better in the long run. Right. You will yeah. gain more trust by being upfront uh, than trying to downplay something. I 100% agree. I believe so. Yeah. yeah I, I, I believe in general that that is true, even no matter how embarrassing it is. All right, uh, moving on, tech and tech-related companies are laying off workers. Uh, For instance, uh, software-as-a-service giant Salesforce announced a 10% staff cut that translates to approximately 8,000 people let go. Uh, Pluralsight, which provides IT training materials, announced it was laying off 20% of its staff or about 400 people. And in mid-December, Cisco cut 4,100 jobs. Yeah, I'm kind of sanguine about this. Do you like that? Sanguine? Wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh (laughs) Relaxed. I'm not too worried about this. I think, you know, we've talked about the... Recession coming up. I think we talked about it last week's episode. Um, in case of Pluralsight, there's actually uh, worth noting that IT training was a target for private equity investment about three years ago, and it was bought out by a private equity investor. Um, and so the motivation there is likely that many investors believe that a slowdown and recession is about to happen. 
and there's actually going to be higher interest rates on debt and less cash for investors and more risk on the investors that they're making. And so they're looking to make sure that profits are coming in. Pluralsight in particular, I believe, is actually laying off um, staff in the US and replacing them with staff in Indonesia and India to get lower costs. So although the headcount might stay the same, there's some questions around the quality of the materials going forward. And there was some scuttlebutt um, that various people who were creating content with Pluralsight is that they're being told to cut. Their, their, their revenue is going to be cut and they will have less incentives to produce quality content. Mm. Now, that is not just true of Pluralsight, by the way. That's true of many of the other training companies who are all saying, you know, the fastest way I can make more money, of course, is to pay the content creators less. <laughs> and as YouTube found, the cheaper you pay the content creators, the less the quality of the content. I mean, TikTok is the ultimate evolution in that, Drew, where cheap content <laughs> just leads up on a TikTok type thing. And that's a worry for me because tech training really needs quality needs to be focused on maintaining the best people. And if they don't do that, I suspect that we'll see IT training circle down to where it was 10, 20 years ago when it was pretty poor. One of the issues could be that uh, there are there's more competition for essentially the same size audience. Uh, there are a lot of tech training companies out there. There's lots of, you know, sort of individual experts mm -hmm. providing content. And there's folks sort of giving you basics for free on YouTube. So I could see why they're feeling pressure. But yeah, if you start yeah. messing around with the quality of the training content, that in the long term, I mean, you might get some short term gains, but in the long term, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, and at the moment, the only reason the vendors don't offer their own training is because it makes sense for these companies to exist. But if this training doesn't meet the standard, then it'll become relevant for the vendors to start offering their own training programs, such as what VMware does today. And that's why they do it, is because they wanted a consistent quality training program, that, and so they stepped in to run their own accredited programs. So if you want to see that happen, and that's you know that'll actually shoot your business in the foot. Mm -hmm. As far as Salesforce goes, I'm not too worried. Um, most companies... Most tech companies lay off 10% of staff every year. It's kind of an unwritten rule. Cisco, for example, regularly does just before Christmas um, as a pattern for the last, certainly for the last few years. You know, if you're a Cisco employee and it turns into November, you should be thinking about whether you're going to get sacked in December every year. That's just going to happen. And Cisco will then turn around and, and like most tech companies will then turn around and say, oh yes, and it's very difficult to employ. We're struggling to find new people after just laying off 10% of the headcount. So they'll be hiring 10 and sacking 10. So it's kind of moot as to whether this is actually a downturn, but um, you know we talked about the recession fairly steadily over the last I don't know eight weeks, Drew. Yeah. I think. Well, the potential for uh, a recession. We're not in one yet. Yeah. So this week's giggle that I've had is that Goldman Sachs Investment Strategy Group puts the probability of a recession in 2023 between 45 and 55 percent, <laughs> which is a hell of a prediction That's because good. you're going to be right. So you could way. flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> Either it will or it won't. You know, it's like, ah. <laughs> How much money did Goldman not spend on that? <laughs> I know, I'm trying not to think what it is. So. Anyway, so, I mean, the weird part about the recession, of course, is the more people talk about it, the more they convince themselves. And the more, you know, if you say, if you lay off 10% of your, your, you know, your headcount, there's less people out there spending money. So there will be a recession. So I, it actually becomes a... Self-fulfilling. Exactly. That's exactly the phrase I was going to use. I feel like we're the financial press is essentially talking us into a recession and getting everybody spooked. I, I'm sort of like it hasn't happened yet, and there's lots of competing indicators here that it might not happen. So let's hold off on the recession talk. But yeah, people love to get worried. And, <laughs> it does. Yeah, so yeah, there may be a recession in places like the bond market, but I'm not too sure there's going to be a recession in the tech market. So 
you can have a, a recession in, in different places. Right, that in one sector that doesn't necessarily spill over, yeah. 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 And, and I think the thing here is that so far I'm not seeing too many signs or, or very few signs that the laid-off tech workers are struggling to find work. So I don't see too many tech workers complaining that they can't find new work or they've been unemployed for months and can't find anywhere to go. I think most of them are being snapped up somewhere. So, I would assume, yeah. yeah. Still, though, it always hurts to get uh, to get the sack and, you know, sympathies to everybody going through that because it's not fun. Oh, it's definitely a growth opportunity <sighs> to sit down and evaluate. <laughs> no, it's not. It's horrible. No, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> it's a blow. Yeah. But, you know, and to be truth to be told, a lot of those tech companies give very generous severance packages in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. A lot of those people have gotten three to six months of, you know, pay in advance um, and so forth. So, yeah, they're probably not. You know, sitting on the sidelines with no money. Hopefully. For most of them. Yeah, hopefully. All right, a quick break uh, in the conversation to tell you about uh, our upcoming live stream event on the future of data processing units or DPUs and IT infrastructure. It's a live stream event on January 23rd, 2023. DPUs are special purpose hardware. They run in servers to accelerate network security and storage functions. They're creating new opportunities and challenges for distributed architectures. If you want to learn about DPUs and their impact on infrastructure and operations, come to our live stream event. It's sponsored by Dell Technologies. We're going to have six technical sessions hosted by the Packet Pushers on topics including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, how Dell's integrating DPUs into hyperconverged infrastructure such as VxRail, and how VMware's Project Monterey is bringing a software environment to DPUs so you can run essential virtualization, storage security, and networking services right on that hardware. Sign up for this free live event. It's taking place via Zoom at packetpushers.net slash livestream. We'll see you on January 23rd. One more time, you can sign up at packetpushers.net slash livestream. Right, back to the news. Uh, Cloudflare, you probably know it for DNS and CDN offerings. They've announced a new digital experience monitoring or DEM offering. It's aiming to help enterprises track end user application and network performance. Uh, the offering's using Cloudflare's existing Warp client. It runs on end user devices. It uses traceroute and HTTP GET requests so to collect network and application data and show you hop-by-hop -hop network telemetry. Uh, it provides all of this to admins via dashboard. Yeah, and I still believe that monitoring and visibility and things like digital experience monitoring are the biggest thing for 2023. When you your WAN runs over the internet or the public WAN and you've got multiple clouds, you know, you've got resources, how do you track all of that together, mm -hmm. right? How do you know if something's not working? Mm -hmm. And in the old days, you'd just go like, oh, well, you know, I bought a 10 meg or a 100 meg circuit out there. There's nothing I can do about it. I'll wait a few hours and then ring him up and say, is it working now? And 99% of the time they'd say yes, right? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> but that's not... <laughs> that's not going to be the way, you know, and it's not like you were going to fix it. Like, it's not like you were suddenly saying, oh, you know, well, we'll just turn it up from 100 megs to 200 megs and fix it for you. And it's like, eh, it's not the way it works, right? right? So there is a definite inflection point here. And this sort of experience monitoring that Cloudflare is doing is just saying our VPN has it built in and they're just adding it on. So in the same way we saw this happening with SD-WAN and then SAS and then people were putting digital experience and monitoring in as part of that package, either as an add-on or just adding it as a default uh, part of the monitoring tool, you know, because you're already doing the application monitoring in these things. It's not that hard to, to, to do it. Whereas in years gone by, if you wanted to do, you know, monitoring of all the laptops at the edge, you had to have some way of capturing the packets or capturing the flows and then identifying the applications. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's just standard feature. Everything's over SSL, really easy to footprint and to monitor. Yeah, particularly when you're dealing with a mix of on-prem and remote workers, a remote worker calls up and says, the network is low. 
Okay, well, which one? The local ISP? Is it some mm. intermediary on the WAN? Is it actually, you know, a slow-performing SaaS application? You don't really know. So having instrumentation right on the end of your device can really help you identify and solve the problems faster. Yeah. So it, it's and it's and if the dam is integrated with your zero trust, you know who. Yes. You know which who which it is, is right. doing. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, right. And so if it's on a, you know, and if it's on a laptop that you gave them, you can put an agent on that and it's running into a proxy where they're doing security scanning. So they know what all the apps look like. It's a whole new, you know, the whole technology that underlies this, this, you know, application monitoring and, or DEM as we call it, you know, digital experience monitoring. It's just changed the whole underlying layer behind that. So yes, that's what, that's really what we're looking in here. I will say uh, that Cloudflare's current digital experience monitoring offering doesn't look at device or local Wi-Fi performance. That's a significant hole because performance issues are, particularly for home or remote workers, often related to something like Wi-Fi or uh, CPU or memory problems right on the device. Uh, Cloudflare says it will add those capabilities in a subsequent release. It hasn't said when, uh, but they know that they're missing that and they need to get it. Uh, and it's competing against folks like Catchpoint, AppNeta, and Thousand Eyes in the dem space. Yeah. Lots of them. Lots of them. Yeah. You have your choice. Mm. Uh, moving on, an Ohio court uh, has ruled that an insurance company doesn't have to pay out on a cyber insurance policy because the ransomware that affected the customer didn't cause any physical damage to the computer systems. The court said the insurance contract specifically stated that only direct physical loss or direct physical damage to media was covered by the policy. So while essential data had been encrypted, there was no actual damage to the electronics or the hardware. So the insurance company doesn't have to pay. <laughs> so this seems like it really got off on a legal technicality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but if you also read it, it really sounds like this company was pretty lazy and sort of as soon as they got owned, they just sort of went, I oh, don't worry about it. The insurance will pay for it. Mm. And I just have the fe the sense that um, when you sort of dig into this, that uh, they said uh, the court gave the, the court in its final ruling gave the rationale that a computer might have physical electronic components that are tangible, but the information stored there has no physical presence, right? And it really feels like cyber insurance companies are pushing back on companies that haven't char haven't done enough to prevent it from happening um, as much as they're trying to squeeze out. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that cyber insurance was sort of used by executives to say, oh, don't worry, we've got an insurance policy. If something happens, we'll just use that to cover the loss and you know we'll keep going. So we won't bother about doing much about it. Mm -hmm. and that, I feel like this sort of... Cyber insurance pushing back is actually going to do more for ramping up security engagement. And part of the reason I keep raising it is that people, you should be saying to your bosses, cyber insurance isn't going to cover you. You need to look really, really carefully here at what you, you can't just sit there and say, I oh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll just stay where we are. Cyber insurance will cover any losses. If that comes up, you might want to say like your cyber insurance policy isn't what you think it is. And potentially your cyber insurer just might not pay out. And there's a, that is increasingly true. And we're actually seeing a lot of cyber insurance companies pull out of the market in 2023. They're just not going to cover it anymore because they're being tapped for too much cash. And I wanted to sort of keep on that theme. I think it's relevant. Yeah, I do think there is a risk for companies who think we do have cyber insurance, so we don't have to, you know, do all the security hygiene that we typically would because we'll just get the payout. Um, that's that's a dangerous, mm. uh, that's sort of a moral hazard there. Uh, if you are investing yeah. in cyber insurance, read the fine print, get a lawyer to look it over because you want to make sure that you don't get caught up in something like that. <laughs> that really hurts. Um, and frankly, for the in cyber insurance companies, they have not got their actuarial house in order when it comes to the real risk of cyber. Uh, and that's why we see so many of them pulling out because they thought they were going to get into a very lucrative market and just got bled. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean... 
insurance for physical loss and physical damage is pretty bad. Like, like that's really sure. If you're good, like, that's like for flood insurance, but not for your cyber insurance. Yeah, that's right. If you're buying cyber insurance, surely you're trying <laughs> to protect against ransomware or something. <laughs> then you're suddenly. When was the last time cyber, you know, some sort of ransomware or some sort of cyber attack actually blew up all the servers, like got them all to pop the guts right. and stuff? It just it really feels like. Yeah, there's some there's a disconnect here, and I think it's going to continue for a while until it settles down. Yeah. All right, moving on, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, this is from the IT getting entangled in the geopolitics desk. First, HPE selling off its shares in H3C. This is a Chinese venture that sells IT services and equipment, including HPE gear to companies in China and globally. HPE holds 43% of H3C's shares, and it's going to sell them off. According to a story in the register, HPE says the deal is part of a longstanding financial agreement and not because of growing tensions between China and the U.S. or export restrictions on Chinese technology. And you can sort of hear the register raising its eyebrows like, really? That's that's really what it is? Uh, and meanwhile... <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly? Really? <laughs> and in a related story, Reuters reports that Dell Technologies is going to stop using Chinese-made computer chips by 2024 and is looking to source other components such as circuit boards from outside of China. So, wow, this is... Uh, things are getting messy. Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about geopolitics changing the way things work, and particularly access to Chinese markets has suddenly substantially changed. So part of the original um, pattern for selling H3C was that HPE would then have access to the Chinese market to sell its servers and have a, a business partner in China to, to sell its products into China. Obviously, that is no longer possible. So they don't really have much incentive to hold on to the company, except maybe if you're trying to provide support for H3C products. Mm -hmm. Uh, which were built around an operating system called Comware, which it sold um, while, especially in around in and around Asia, not so much in America mm -hmm. and less so in Europe. Um, but the you know the Comware products were actually very good and and very widely used. Um, I think they could have done more with that, in, but had been sort of running the the Cisco, you know, we're just going to partner with with existing vendors at that time, sort of thing. So, I think um, generally that what happening here is that HPE has either reached the end of life cycle for a lot of its, uh, you know, the stuff that it has and the stuff that it wants. And it's saying, okay, do we really need that asset? And then you look at what's happening in China and the pressure, you know, that they're under to sort of conform with US and Western government policy. And I think they just said, well, now's the time to sell it. Um, let's start moving down that path. And Dell moving out of China obviously is uh, following the same path. What you're seeing is Dell's no longer really able to sell products into China. Uh, part of what uh, Western companies did was about getting equipment made in China was that they were able to sell into China by setting up factories there. Mm -hmm. That's changing. And so I think you're going to see a lot more of these companies move out. And then, of course, we've seen a pretty steady progression right throughout COVID to moving assembly and various pieces of the supply chain to Vietnam, to India, to Indonesia, right. to Malaysia, yeah. uh, and other low-cost locations. And some of it is even moving back onto the into Western countries as automation makes it more viable to do so. Um, so, you know, at what point would they want to keep on to holding on to this forever? So I think that makes sense. So I don't know if anybody has coined this yet, but I'm going to throw it out there. Uh, we're seeing a digital curtain essentially being drawn between the West uh, and China when it comes to uh, manufacturing and technology. Uh, and that the fact that Dell is going to stop using Chinese-made chips, uh, I think is frankly stunning. So it's a clear indicator mm. that to 
U.S. government administrations, a Republican administration and a Democratic administration have been taking a very hawkish approach to the technology mm -hmm. relations between the two companies. And now uh, corporations are reading the, seeing the signals and saying, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're moving along. We've got to, you know, we've got to diversify. Well, the interesting part here is that most of the chips don't come from China. They come from Japan or Taiwan or South Korea. Um, and, you know, who have extensive fabs, and that's where the advanced chips are basically made. And it, the, the sort of chips that China makes are not actually well-suited to computers. They have much older technologies, and they're generally not, and they've basically, what they've done is bought obsolete equipment, and they've been making chips for other things, like washing machines, for example, mm -hmm. cars. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is a huge loss to Dell, um, but they also want to be seen to be supporting what Western governments, I mean, and there's a lot of subsidies being thrown around. We've talked around, you know, there's a lot of factories being built here in the US, you know, yeah, with government, with government money. money. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you don't, I would imagine that some of the, even the chips that they might buy from Western countries might actually be substantially cheaper than they were before because there's a lot of government subsidies. I mean, tech companies just love free government money. They love taxpayer <laughs> money um, and get onto it. One thing that did strike me about this, this whole geopolitical thing, Drew, is that a lot of business leaders are losing prestige and their preeminence. Remember, it was always like, the CEOs are the gods of the universe, you know, it's all about money and profits, forget the rest. And this whole switch over to societal issue being more important than profits and growth, you know, it's more about safety and peace. I wonder how many CEOs and financiers are ready for that change and whether they'll welcome it. Like, do you really want to be kingpin and, you know, all that sort of stuff and, oh, it's all about the money. And now all of a sudden it's not the money, it's about safety, it's about peace, it's about consistency. Mm. Must be must be interesting experience for some of those people. <laughs> I, I think they don't like it. They don't want anything to do with it. They do just want to focus no. on the money and the growth, but mm. uh, that's why they have marketing departments and public relations departments. Yeah. Look at Elon Musk selling Teslas into China. He must be in a tough situation there because that he's no longer successful because the Chinese government has made it clear that Chinese people should buy Chinese electric cars. And <laughs> he's going to be in a... <laughs> Elon Musk is a whole different issue, so <laughs> we'll just yes, leave him but, alone. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, we are moving into... The mouth noises that executive have to make are are going to be different, I think, going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, moving on, we're going to wrap up with a couple of uh, Microsoft stories. They announced uh, Microsoft recently announced two acquisitions. First, uh, it acquired DPU maker Fungible for 190 million. Fungible DPUs are designed to accelerate storage, networking, and security functions. In a blog, Microsoft said, "Quote: The Fungible team will join Microsoft's data center infrastructure engineering teams and will focus on delivering multiple DPU solutions, network innovation, and hardware system advancements." Uh, I will note Fungible took in 310 million in venture investment, so the 190 million must be a disappointment to investors. Yeah, I, uh, my, I've spoken to some people and followed some threads. Uh, anybody who worked for Fungible basically got nothing. Some of the uh, founders and some of the early investors got something back. Um, they didn't get, but nobody really made out too well. Mm. Fungible um, was attacking the storage market. It had to build a thing called the Fungible, Fungible Storage Cluster, the world's fastest secure scale-out all-flash NVMe over TCP disaggregated storage platform. Did you Oof, get that? That's a mouthful. It just trips off the tongue. <laughs> I've been practicing that all morning. Yeah, well done. Um, <laughs> basically, it puts a DPU inside the server, um, and they made some really interesting choices. By putting the DPU inside the server, it really simplified the whole storage processing, so it was all done in the DPU, and then the external storage system was then very simplified. The challenge here was, I think, for Fungible, was that they weren't storage people. The storage industry is very insular, very clicky, very closed. If you're going to bring a startup to market, you really need to have a team of storage you know, people who have got a name for storage to make this work. And 
the founder of the company was actually one of the Juniper mm-hmm. um, founders. Juniper exec, yeah. Juniper executive, um, and I think actually one of the early founders of the company or something like that. Um, not really known for being a storage person, and so that didn't help. And ultimately, too, Fungible chose MIPS for their CPU architecture and not ARM. Most other DPU makers have gone down the ARM path, uh, and I think that might have led them into a bit of a, d- a dark story when people started talking about putting apps on the Fungible DPU. People would much rather develop for a standard yeah. CPU. So, right, right, right. Yep. you know, you've you got Mellanox and Intel. They're all talking about using ARM on their DPUs. So we'll see what happens there. Um, so at the end of the day, it would appear that Microsoft wants DPU developers, and I believe that they basically acquired what was left of Fungible, bought some of its intellectual property and so forth. Um, hard to see how Fungible actually relates to Azure's services because up until now they've been using Mellanox. I believe they bought a lot of Intel uh-huh. IPU, you know, the Intel's DPU technology recently around FPGAs. Um, so it's going to be messy in there until Microsoft settles down and takes a path, you know. But maybe uh, Microsoft had a falling out with NVIDIA and maybe wants to see less of the Mellanox or wants to have some diversity in its supply chain. Who knows? But uh, yeah, just interesting to know what happened to it. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me if Microsoft was buying this for the DPUs and will continue to develop that hardware or just wanted, you know, the IP and the engineering talent. Maybe having that, you know, potential to spin up some DPUs uh, on their own in their back pocket is something they like. And in the meantime, they get the engineering talent. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's important to have people who've got skills in writing the code, mm-hmm. you know, that they they know how a DPU thinks and so forth. And just because they're on MIPS doesn't mean they can't be you know, reskilled into ARM sure. or ported over to ARM somehow. So I think, or you know, maybe you just let the, you know, that part of the team goes off and finds something else MIPSy to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Maybe Microsoft has a customer that, that writes to the MIPS platform. And so they're, they're Well, I think there's point. a thing for the apps. So the storage app, which was running, can be certainly used on other DPUs and you rewrite that to get, do something in the storage array, some sort of high-speed storage or distributed storage system that gives Microsoft an edge. Um, might be where they're headed, you know, using DPUs. It's, it's, it's the thing for 2023. We're going to be talking about a lot. People aren't going to do anything about it, but I think in 2024, you're going to start to see it creep into the enterprise. Uh, one more acquisition by Microsoft. This happened in December. They acquired Luminicity. Luminicity makes hollow core fiber optic, fiber optic cabling. Hollow core sends light waves through an air core rather than glass strands. Microsoft says the technology will quote, optimize its global cloud infrastructure. Do you remember we talked about this two years ago or a year ago when there was a research paper came out of a university? I think it was even a UK university from memory. The company is based um, in and, Britain, yes. Yeah. And it's it's this fascinating idea that you can make a fiber optic cable that has multiple cores inside, and then you can focus the light beams into each of those cores. And this gives you substantial advantages in terms of in, instead of being propagating a signal for 60 kilometers, you can make it 90 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. You know, that sounds pretty good, 50% longer, uh, you know, over a much more expensive fiber that you have to put in the ground. There's a trade-off there. You know, are you better off, you know, you know it's expensive to dig fiber in the ground. Do you, can you blow it in? I don't know. Right. But it's interesting that Microsoft bought it. The suggestion I've heard is it's for long haul, so they can get more data down longer distances at an overall lower cost. But really weird. The hollow core fiber is a really interesting thing. 
Yeah, again, maybe Microsoft wanting to get in early on some new interesting IP, see what it can do with it. Obviously, it has a lot of use cases for uh, you know faster, more performant connection of uh, data centers and long-range networking. You know, getting rid of they say with Holocore you can you don't need as many repeaters. You can also use more light waves uh, to so you can send more data along one strand of cable. So lots of interesting use cases, and I'm sure Microsoft was very interested. Uh, no word on how much they paid for Luminicity. Um, but uh, yeah, very interesting buy and a very interesting technology. It is altogether strange that we didn't see a cabling company. Like, if you're a cabling company, don't you want to go out and buy this? Like, you know, if you're corning or something like that, why aren't you out there buying this product and, you know, taking it into the market? But then again, cabling companies are like storage companies. They don't like innovation. They don't like change. They're on a 10-year cycle of innovation because they want, that's how long, that's what they charge for high price fiber, they expect customers to own it for 10 years and pay premium prices for it. Strange, strange industry here we are living sometimes. Well, there's always links in the show notes if you want to read up on it yourself. That does wrap up uh, our news. Uh, Greg, where can folks get more from you if they're interested? Uh, I'm trying to do more blogging unsuccessfully. I just seem, can't seem to get the mental space to put something out. Uh, I'm do am twittering on Ethereal Mind still, uh, although this week, who knows, if they take away my tweet bot client, maybe I'll be on LinkedIn more often. Who knows? <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> LinkedIn. <laughs> You'll become a thought leader. I know. Leader. Creepy, right? Creepy. <laughs> thought Lord. Thought Pants. Something, I don't pants. know. Something. You got to work on that. We'll workshop that. Thought Emperor. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. All right. Uh, I'm Drew Conry Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM and blogging at packetpushers.net. Uh, once more, if you want to reach out to us for comments, corrections, or just say hi, packetpushers.net slash FU. As always, thanks for listening.